All right, let's start this morning by defining ethics. I think that's probably the first thing that we need to do because some of you are like, I came in here because ethics sounded smart. I don't even know what it actually is. Uh, Maybe others of you are really interested in what ethics is. Uh, Here's how I'm going to define ethics this morning. The ethics fundamentally, fundamentally, the study of ethics aims to answer one question. It aims to answer one question. How ought we to live? How ought we to live, right? Uh, Some people might think ethics is like, have you guys ever heard of the trolley problem? It's like you're on a train and there's like 100 people who are going to die unless you like turn the switch and you like change the train's direction and then it's going to kill like only like one person. So do you kill 100 people by doing nothing or kill one person by like changing the direction of the train. It's like, guys, for the record, that's not ethics. That's not an ethical quandary. You are never gonna be in that situation. You're never gonna have to think about that. So why are you bothering taking up space in your head? Some of you are like, I've never heard of that before. Well, welcome to the stupid world of non-ethics. What I am talking about instead is about what you do every day. Every minute that you are alive, you are making decisions about how you want to live. And because no one here, as far as I can tell, is holding a gun to your head, even you coming to this seminar this morning is a, is a choice that you made, right? What you ate, what you, where you shop, what you, what you buy, what you watch with your eyeballs, what you give your time to, like all of these things, I would say, envelop what it means to live an ethical life, to think about how you ought to live. By the way, for people who just came in, you're going to need a, an outline in the back, um, send a delegation back there. Uh, to give you kind of a picture example of what we're talking about, uh, I just recently watched the movie Coda on Apple Plus. If you, like, it is worth the price of admission just to, you know, do the seven-day trial, make up an email address, and do Apple Plus, okay, Uh, and watch Coda. There's this scene in the movie Coda where essentially it's it's the story of a girl who is hearing, but her parents, she's the child of a deaf adult, and so her father is at this choir concert. She's singing, right, and her father is deaf, And there's this moment where all the music cuts out and it's just her uh, singing up on the stage and she's just, the mouth is going, but you can't hear anything. And it's from the dad's perspective and he's looking around at everybody in the audience and like there's a woman weeping and they're like, there's another lady over here that's like smiling ear to ear. And he's like, what's like something important is happening and he's not clued in to like what's going on, right? He's on the outside looking in of what his daughter is doing, right? So they get home that evening and he says, can you tell me what the song is about? She starts to explain it and he doesn't, he's like, I just don't understand how that could really, you know, make people like react emotionally the way that it did. And he says, well, can you sing it for me? And it's just them two outside under the stars and she starts to sing. Sorry. And the dad uh, takes, well, the daughter takes the dad's hands and places them on her vocal cords so that he can feel what it is that she's talking about. So he can hear in his own way the beauty that she is singing about, right? Ethics is God holding our hands despite our lack of hearing, right? That sin on some level has marred our ability to see the world in all its beauty, the way that God has constructed it. 
God takes our hands and puts them on his vocal cords so we can hear the song he is singing over his creation. That is ethics, right? That we can get a glimpse of the beauty and understand how it is that we are to live in this world. The importance of this issue for me came up uh, in seminary. One time I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine named Trey, and we were discussing our dream jobs after seminary. Uh, You know, I was getting my master's, if you don't know, like all your campus ministers, they get a master's, and then they have to pass an exam in order to be ordained in the PCA, which is what we all are, uh, ordained in all your campus ministers. It's a denomination. And these exams, like, ask all these, like, comprehensive questions about all sorts of things. But some of what they do is they ask, like, questions about hot-button issues in the Christian world, right? Some gray areas that even Christians of, you know, good faith efforts, like, they they just disagree on, you know, certain things. And uh, I hold a particular view of creation that would prevent me from actually being hired for my dream job. Uh, because, you know, the people who would be examining me would be like, well, I don't know if I like that. And essentially, uh, I told Trey, I was like, you know, I probably just wouldn't tell them about that, right? If they asked me, I just probably wouldn't tell them about that. And he looked at me with like, his eyes got real big and like, you would have, uh, yeah, he like kind of, you know, somberly asked, would you, would you lie if it got you your dream job? And I, I thought about it for a second and I was like, well, no, you're not supposed to lie. That's one of the big ones uh, in the, uh, the old law there. Um, it's in the Bible somewhere. But I, but I thought, you know, how much good could I do if I did? Right? How much good could I do? Maybe I could plant a church, you know, and many people could come to faith. And I could do a lot of good in the community and uh, bring people to faith. And so I thought about it for a second. And then I said, well, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I mean, if it, if it meant that I could help people, I mean... I think the kingdom of God is a lot bigger and a lot more important than whether one man thinks the, the earth is 6,000 years old or not, right? Like that, that's, that's not as important as the kingdom. And you, you really would have thought that like I had drug Trey's dog out in front of him and just shot it right on the spot, the way that he looked at me. He was like, what? And then yells out, like literally yells out, but that would be a lie, Nick you would then be a liar. And I was like, like I, like, I was so confused. Like, maybe you guys are like, yeah. Like, some of you guys are have that impulse to be like, yeah, you can't lie on things. I'm going to be honest, right? In my head, uh, this, you know, I knew that God had rules, but I also thought, like, those can be bent under the right circumstances, right? Uh, isn't that what Jesus is doing throughout the whole Gospels, right? The He's healing people on the Sabbath and like do it. And, you know, the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and he's like dunking on Pharisees for their like all their rules. Right. He hates rules. He hates laws. Right. The laws don't matter anymore. As long as you're trying to love people. That's what Jesus is all about. Man. You got to love people. And maybe maybe even love people like you might have to say some hard things. sometimes. I'm not all about, you know, like Jesus. Sometimes he turned tables like, you know, but like like Jesus, you know, that's what we're following now. Not. Not rules, not rules, right? The point of the the Christian life is to seek the good of your neighbor and to limit the suffering of other people. And if you have to like bend a few laws along the way, like, what does it matter, right? That's what I thought. That's where my sanctification began in terms of ethics, in terms of asking myself the question, how ought I to live? Uh, was 
was the sanctified condemnation I felt from my friend Trey that day. I was missing something in that conversation. Right? I hadn't, there was a gap that had appeared in my understanding of how to love and obey God. And really, the truth is, like, I was deaf to God's song. I loved him, but I wasn't listening. I wasn't hearing how he was singing the tune. Uh, by the way, if you just came in, if you're, there are some in the back, there are handouts. Uh, you're going to need those for an activity later, but uh, it also give you an idea of where we're going. You can follow along. But uh, would advise you to get one. The, the truth was, right, I was a Christian and I loved Jesus, but I had truthfully inherited our culture's worldview about the good life, about what was good and what I ought to do, right? In, inherited our culture's ethical worldview. And here's, here's, my, here's something I'm, I'm going to put forward to you, that if you have grown up in America over the past 200 years, and that looks like all of you, right? If that's you, then you have also been breathing the same air that I have been breathing, culturally speaking. That, that this is collectively, even, even if you, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or outside the church, that this is really how we've been shaped and formed. And l- allow me to explain. In, in my blurb for this seminar, I claim that you and I, right, tragically, live in a moment of severe ethical poverty. Let me explain how we live in that moment. Uh, I can't possibly rehash 2,000 years of Western civilization in an hour. Again, I, I recommend to you like Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self or Dominion for that, for that exercise. But let me give you one snapshot. In the 18th century, there lived a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Maybe you've heard of Rousseau. Uh, he was one of Thomas Jefferson's greatest influences, right? He, t- Jefferson loved him and uh, part of our Declaration of Independence, like our Constitution, lots of things are shaped off of Rousseau and his thoughts. Uh, there's this, he writes this book called The Confessions. And in it, uh, he describes this scenario where he steals a ribbon. He's working for you know, this, uh, this employer and, you know, working in their house and he sees a hair ribbon at one point and thinks, you know, I'm criminally underpaid. I'm actually way more qualified, uh, than to be like working for this family. And, uh, I would like to give that ribbon to uh, a person that I'm actually trying to be friends with. I think they would like that ribbon. And so he takes it. Before he can give it to the other person, he gets, gets found out that he's taken this ribbon. It's, you know, at, at the time, remember, textiles, these are like expensive things, right? And he's taking this ribbon, and uh, he gets in trouble. And they ask him, like, what, like wh- wh- how did you get this ribbon? And he says, well, actually, I didn't steal it. You know, uh, this housemaid that you have, she stole it and gave it to me. Right? He lies. Now, as he starts to come to reflect on what happened... He says two things about the incident. Uh, Two things. He says, it was actually right for me to have taken the ribbon because I was righting a wrong that had already been wronged against me, right? That I, that what I wanted to do was something good with the ribbon, that they didn't really appreciate it as much as they should have. And also that I, myself, am, uh, was just trying to get my proper compensation, right? And if it wasn't for the social expectations and norms and rules about stealing, like actually what I would have done would have been totally fine and nobody would have blamed me for doing it. 
Secondly, he says, actually, and I would have told the truth about it too. I would have been bold enough to say, like, and honestly, I took the ribbon because it's mine. But the problem was that the shame that I would have felt based on, again, the social conventions of the day, right? Uh, mostly rooted in the Bible and religion. So the, the arbitrary social norms and the repercussions that would have come to me, right? Maybe I would have gone in jail, whatever, right? Those were enough to get me to lie. So really the problem for Rousseau, what ends up happening is the problem for Rousseau isn't me. It's out there. It's, it's all the rules. It's all the expectations our society has. And if I can just get rid of those, then, and if everyone could just get rid of those, if we could be really free, then actually we would live as, you know, um, uh, unhindered human lives where we would all flourish. We'd actually, ne- nobody would ever hurt anybody again. Everything would be happy if we could just follow our hearts. He calls it the natural man. The natural man is born good. It's in throwing off outside laws that we become our best selves. And what develops out of this is an insatiable desire for freedom and the enlightenment. Now, here's the problem, right? Obviously, about this like idea about you know, you can do anything. You should be able to do stuff without any sort of laws or norms. Uh, if somebody makes you angry, you know, even Rousseau would argue, right? You can't just like murder that person. You can't be like, well, I'm angry. And what I really want to do to express myself is to, you know, put an ice pick through your head. Uh, like that's not okay. You can't do that. So we have to rein this in somehow. And uh, the way that this happens is that basically the greatest ethical revolution since the religion of Jesus swept across Rome ends up happening in the Western Hemisphere. And consequentialism, what we would call consequentialism, ends up being the sole ethical perspective of the West. The sole ethical grid, the sole way of answering that question, how are we to live? How ought we to live? Consequentialism becomes the only thing we think about. Now, what does that mean? Well, consequentialism, let me define it for you. Consequentialism is an ethical perspective, right? One way of looking at ethics that judges how we are to live by whatever maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain, right? Minimizes suffering. Let me say that again. It's an ethical perspective that judges how we are to live, right? Its major tenet is we want to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. How you do that is that on some level, you look at the outcomes of any given choice, right? You look at what will happen if I do X, Y, or Z, and you look at, you know, how much pleasure everyone will have given a choice and how much pain you'll cause given a choice. And then you do the thing that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. At its most basic, the consequentialist creed then might be, if it feels good to you and does not harm someone else, it is good, right? That's the creed. If it feels good to you and it doesn't hurt other people, you should do it. It is an ethical good. Uh, Christians, right now for our part, y'all wouldn't put it that way. Sitting in the room like, I would never say that, right? Well, let me explain. Like you have, what we do is we conceal it by baptizing that same idea in like Christian virtues. Here's how we say it. Our mantra becomes, if it gives us the best outcome or consequence, right? As the Bible defines it, it's good, right? We replace ourselves. Yes, right. We replace ourselves as the arbiter of like what's good, our own happiness. We say, well, God is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give God the, 
you know, what he says. I, like, he, you know, he has, like, thoughts about how the world ought to work. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, but, you know, uh, really, yeah, as I said earlier, if I have to, like, bend a few rules or whatever, if I have to do some things, then, like, really it doesn't matter because the point is to do the most good while minimizing suffering, right? That I'm supposed to look at the consequences of my actions and do what is the most good for the most amount of people, right? I, uh, I'll unpack some of that more in a moment, but really what I'm trying to say is within the church and without, it's my contention that we are swimming 250 years downstream from this Rousseau enlightenment consequentialist ethical current. And might I add, right, that we are doing so with vigor, that we are like wholesale, like really trying to do this. It's the air that we are all breathing. Now, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? Isn't, like I said earlier, isn't that what Jesus is doing? What's the problem with having consequentialism as the sole ethical perspective by which we ought to live? Right? Well, here's my argument, that it's made us ethically impoverished, and it's done this in three ways. That it provides more outrage than answers, more pain than promise, and more gray than guidance. Now I'm going to unpack each of those. I want to start with that, that consequentialism as our ethical grid uh, provides more outrage than answers. Uh, we see this most, uh, like primarily in terms of getting outrage instead of answers. We see this in the rise of whataboutism as like this sole, like ethical defense of basically any decision. Have y'all noticed this? That uh, if you know what whataboutism is, it's basically saying like, what about, about like whatever argument someone's making. If somebody says like, you shouldn't do this. It's like, well, what about like this problem with you or whatever, right? If, if you can, he, here's what this assumes. What aboutism assumes this? That if you can make the other choice seem worse than the choice that's in front of you, right? If you, if you have two roads to go down and one seems worse, then the other one must be good, right? In a consequentialist worldview, right, that says like we look at all the outcomes and make a decision, right? If you can just paint the other one in bad enough light, then the other one becomes good right? Because it's, I mean, it's the better of two evils. Everything in our society has, been, has essentially devolved into false dichotomies where we just try to point at the other decision and say, that's actually worse, right? Think about, I mean, like this becomes very obvious with like basically any sort of political race where they just go like, don't vote for that guy. He's worse. And they're like, don't vote for that guy. He's worse. Don't vote for this woman. You know, like they very rarely is anybody telling you like, the right things to be doing. It's mostly just what about this person? What about they, what do they do? Um, right. You're always choosing between the lesser of two evils. We see this in false dichotomies like abortion versus the welfare of the mother, right? You're either, you're either pro-life, meaning you, you're pro-life of the baby, but not the mom, or you support mothers, you support women. And like, just hear me out. What if you could care about both? What if, what if, just throwing it out there. What if, what if Simone Biles caring about her mental health does not mean you also don't care about mental toughness, right? We do this thing, like it's happened this summer, right? At the Olympics, Simone Biles backs out and there's this big outcry. You can't just not do whatever you don't want to do because of your mental health, like all these people. And then the other side going, well, you guys don't care about mental health. And actually that is physical health and you, right? And then it just becomes like, do you care about mental health or do you care about mental toughness? It's like, what if, what if both, por que no low steps? You know, like, 
Why is it, why is it either? You either care about racial inequality or you care about law and order. Right? You guys need to stop burning down our buildings. Well, you guys need to stop being racist. It's like, or let's do both. You know, like it's, this is like, what about ism is just devolved. And it's because we are full blown consequentialists. And for the record, that argument, those arguments are not out there, right? They're in the church too. Every election, every, everything that we think about, we basically boil it down to consequentialism and it gives us basically no middle ground, no way to think about anything. And we just start picking which road is worse than the other. The other thing that consequentialism does is it provides more pain than promise. Now here's how it does this. Consequentialism promises happiness, but delivers pain by diminishing promises. Let me, let me say that again. Consequentialism, what it does is it promises happiness But actually what it does is it delivers pain by killing promises. What do I mean by that? If it's simply about pain and pleasure, if it's simply about pain and pleasure, you know, maximizing pain, minimizing pleasure, sorry, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, uh, right? Why honor promises? Why honor promises either made intentionally or unintentionally, right? Why honor promises? Right? Most, uh, most people in our day and age, right, we see this probably most clearly in the, in the biggest promise that our society still makes, which is marriage, right? That two people promise to love each other no matter what. What ends up happening uh, in our dating culture is that we look for the ideal spouse, right? He'll be tall and he won't, he, and, and, you know, he'll be built like a Greek god or maybe he'll have a dad bod if you're into that. I don't know, right? And it's like, you know, he'll be a frat daddy. I don't know what it is that you, that you really want, right? He can chug six beers. I, like, what, whatever it is that you think would just be the echelon of, like, dating culture, right? Uh, and the thing is, uh, or, you know, guys, you have this version too, but it's basically like she's hot, um, right? Like, uh, whatever it is that you, uh, whatever it is that you conceive of, and that's not good for the record. Anyway, so that should go without saying. Whatever it is that you conceive of as the best, what, what you really want is somebody who is going to give you the greatest outcome. And uh, this, is what, this leads to a couple things. Really long dating relationships because you're really vetting the other person, right? Making sure that they're, not, they're going to be a value add to your life and not a value negative, right? Pro- what's, the, what's the problem? You actually can't see like 30 years into the future, right? You can't actually know whether they're going to be like a value add to their life. Like the guy who has a six pack now, like, I mean, ladies, he's going to, I mean, it's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like dudes, you're in for a world of hurt if that's, if that's how you think about things, right? Like, uh, or I mean, like, let's say you're, you're like, oh, I'm more, I'm more virtuous than that. I look at the inside, like, okay, well, what happens when, um, Right, so we, we do this, sorry, I want, I'm backing up. We wanna do this like really good vetting. This has also led to like, you move in together, you try out the sex, you make sure everything is good. Like, you know, if you're a Christian, you say like, well, I wanna make sure that they read their Bible enough, that they're godly enough, right? Well, here's the problem, right? Here's the problem, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we think about this consequentially, we think about even marriage consequentially. The problem is that like what happens when you're 10 years in and you have a miscarriage and she no longer reads the Bible like you thought she would? What happens when he gets laid off work, right? Uh, and, you know, he comes home and he's grumpy every day. And he's not the loving, kind, gracious man that you thought you were going to marry. 
If you're looking at that from a pain-pleasure calculus, what you signed up for in a marriage was you uphold your end of the bargain, I get more pain than, or sorry, more pleasure than pain, right? And I, I have a happy life, and I did not sign up for this, and marriage starts to crumble. We've seen it over and over and over again, right? It's within and without. The marriage, the divorce rates are not that much better, right? Just because you know Jesus, um, Going to church does help. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, right, so the point being that, like, now, I, I will also say this. Uh, the consequentialists can, like, crumble the idea of marriage. But I, I, I also want to say that um, that doesn't excuse, like, people, like, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Like, if you're 10 years in and, like, he's abusing you or she is abusing, like, that's a different scenario. You don't have to... Talk to your campus minister about that, like, uh, but I'm not endorsing that you stay in a marriage where someone's being hurt of any kind, just to say that. Um, but that's another discussion. But it is to say that, like, just because someone's, like, not making you as happy as they once did, right, that just kind of cancels out the contract because it doesn't make sense in a consequentialist worldview. I also would argue that, like, maybe you guys are in here and you're like, well, marriage, I, whatever, that's not, I'm not even married, it doesn't matter. I'd also say that it's led to this, this idea of consequentialism, more pain than promise, has also led to a huge transience in our culture, right? What happens when you get a job, lot, yeah, hopefully all of you get a job out of college, and you work it for a year or two, and then some other job will come knocking and say, hey, we can pay you more. And you won't think to yourself, well, I'm rooted in a church and with these people. And, you know, uh, I've made promises to them. Maybe you join a church, you made vows. And I, I really think that it's important that I stick here. And like, who am I becoming with these people? That's a value. No, what you'll do is, all right, how much stuff could I buy if I have a, if I paid, you know, $2,000 for an apartment in New York City versus the where I'm in? Like you, you'll just think, you'll think I go where the money is. Because that's the right consequence. That's going to get you where you want to go in life. Right? We don't stop to think about, like, what kind of promises have you made by living in a place and actually caring about people? And that friendship actually comes with some sort of, like, commitment. Uh, I, have, I have more examples of that, but i got to keep moving. Uh, you can always talk to me more after. Last thing, uh, other problem is more gray than guidance more gray than guidance. Uh, thoroughgoing consequentialism fuels moral ambiguity. Let me say that again. Thoroughgoing consequentialism fuels moral ambiguity. Ambiguity is uh, when like, it's not very clear uh, what you should do. It, it turns morality into an entirely situational proposition, right? It says, well, it depends on any given outcome what I'm going to do. And so really, the truth is, there's never, there's never a good choice. There's just, yeah, like I said, lesser of two evils. But there's also just like, how do you even know how the outcome would go? Here's the, here's the, here's the underlying notion of consequentialism that the Bible firmly butts up against, right, is this. You don't know the future. Did you know that? You actually don't know what's going to happen. Consequentialism assumes on some level that you know how everything's going to turn out if you do a given situation, right? Think back about my situation. I said, oh, I could plant churches. I could do. I don't know if I'm going to plant churches. I don't know if I'm going to reach people. I don't know any of that. You don't know what is going to happen given a choice. You might think you know, but you have no idea the consequences of your actions a lot of the time. Right? If nothing is ever right and wrong and there's no outcome, you can't really know 
what you want to happen because you don't always know what's going to happen in a given situation. And then you just end up twiddling your thumbs going, I have no idea. Right? It's why, it's why also to talk about dating for a second, you twiddle your thumbs because you're like, I don't, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. And so it's hard for me to decide, like, is this the person? How do you know? How many times as a campus minister, I've been asked, how do you know when you're with the one? How do you know? And then I'm like, that's a consequentialist question. Do you guys realize that? To ask the question, how do you know when you're the one, is not to ask, how do I become the right one? It's not to ask, like, how do we make it the right thing? It's about, right, how do I get in the best possible scenario for me later on down the line? It's a consequentialist question. It's a, in a bad one, because <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> right? Stop asking me. Uh, just kidding. You can keep asking, because um, then I can tell you things like this, right? The, like we see this, we see this in dating. We also see it like, honestly, I would say in the moving goalposts of this pandemic, right? Don't wear masks, do wear masks, do this, don't do that. Like it, right? Flatten the curve, right? We heard the first, like I would say the first like, like three weeks, if you can remember the very first three weeks of the pandemic is like, it was like, oh, we're going to flatten the cur- curve. And then it like slowly trans- like transformed into like, we're going to get herd immunity. And then it was like, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to, the endemic is the end goal, right? All stemming from what I would say are shifting goals and the outcome, right? We want to we save, save some lives. We want to make sure we minimize damage. But then it was like, actually, we want to support the economy. Actually, we want to save every life because every life is valuable. Like, we couldn't decide what outcome we wanted. And so everybody had a different perspective. And, like, and the thing is, we're, we're asking scientists to do the job of a philosopher, which is to look at things with more than just consequences in mind, right? And they like, that's well, all we know is consequentialism. That's all we have. Now, how do we get, uh, oh, I'll say two other things, right? I, I'd also say the rise of the anti-hero, like, shows like Ozark, Batman, Breaking Bad, Mad Men. Like, all of those shows are based in the idea of consequentialism. The ends justify the means, right? All of them are based in some idea of, like, you can really like a guy because he's trying to do good, even if he does a lot of bad things to try to do the good. I want to support my family, so I'll make meth, right? Like, this is... I mean, like, the, the concept of that show is thoroughgoing consequentialism, right? Um, how do we get out of that mess? How do we get out of that mess? Uh, well, we do it the way that we get out of any mess of sin. Uh, we repent, right? We turn from the bad, from the sin that we are doing, from the, the ignorance, 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 sorry, the ignorance of God's song to God and, and listening to him. Ethics is not unknowable, right? It's not a bunch of gray areas that depends always on the situation. It doesn't require of us knowledge of a future that we do not possess. It requires knowing the God who is in control. That's the good news. That's the good news. It requires knowing the God and obeying him from whom all good flows, right? That we are not fumbling around in the dark trying to make the best of a bad situation we are instead humbly serving a God who is in control of all things. If you believe that, then you, are, you do not have to bow down to consequentialism, and you shouldn't. I, I printed this out. Look with me at James 1.5. This is on your handout. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You can ask God. You realize that, that, there's, that ethics isn't some idea. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not actually just a grid. 
It's a person that you can know, that Jesus came, that he died, that we know the story of the world. Jesus came, died, lived for us, uh, was resurrected, now seated at the right hand of God, and he's in control of all things. So when you peer into his word and try to make decisions, you are not blindly searching, but you can actually ask the person who knows what the right answer is. There is a knower to be known. Okay. All right. All right. I'll repent. I hear you. I don't want to be a consequentialist, Nick. I don't want to do it. Tell me how to go. Where do I go? Okay. Here's what I'm going to uh, propose to you. Instead of uniperspectivalism, right? Instead of just doing consequentialism, I have, this is a term I'm coining. Usually it's called triperspectivalism, but I added a fourth. Uh, so I'm going to call it quatraperspectivalism, right? For perspectivism. Right? There are more ways to think about ethics than the singular consequential perspective. And here's the beauty of it. They're actually, you, you don't even have to look past the Ten Commandments. You know, look at Exodus 20, and you'll actually see all four of them buried in God's law. Right? Even as he gives the law, he is actually showing you how it is that he thinks about the world, how you are to make ethical decisions. Now, we've already discussed consequential ethics. That's the first one. I, here's, here's the thing. I want to say this too. Consequentialism in and of itself is not bad, right? Uh, it's the sole part of it. It's the fact that it's the only thing that we think about that has made us impoverished. And so you see it even in the Bible that uh, working toward the best scenario is not inherently unbiblical, right? It is actually good. Uh, Exodus twenty twelve. I think this is printed in your handout. It says this, honor your father and mother. Right now, he could have just said, honor your father and mother, because that's, I mean, just do it, you know? But he doesn't. He says, so that, or that, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, uh, you know, as if it wasn't enough, just like you should honor your mother and father. He says, do it so that the consequence of your actions, right? So the consequences of your actions means it will go well with you in the land that I'm giving you. Right? Even God acknowledges, like, sometimes you need good consequences. You need to know that, like, if you do this, good things happen. Right? It's not wrong. It's just, it's just only, it's, it just should never be just one, that, only that perspective. Another uh, perspective that I think helps, and these are all, when we weigh them out here, I should have said this. When we weigh out all four of these perspectives, we get, like, how God thinks about the world. And we're better able, when we weigh them in balance, right? Realizing that they're actually all supposed to work together. So if you have to, if you have to use one to overmine the other, you're doing it wrong, (laughs) right? If you have to use one to overmine the other, you're doing ethics wrong. If you take all four in balance, they actually can work together to help you make the right decision, right? Now, existential ethics means this. Uh, Existential ethics is the second perspective uh, I want you to consider. And this is concerned with character, Concerned with character. It asks the question, uh, whereas, sorry, whereas consequential ethics asks the question, where are we to go, right? Where are we going? Where am I trying to get to? This question asks, who are we to be? Who are we to be? That's existential ethics. Who are we to be, right? Uh, it, it, it wants to know who do you become by taking a certain action or inaction, it's my friend saying, uh, you know, when I said, I guess I just lied to get my dream job. Him saying, but then you'd be a liar, <laughs> right? That you become what you do. 
And the Bible says that, you know, uh, when we do that, yes, that's, that's who we are, right? Uh, that, that, um, the, the often used excuse, if you guys seen the non-apologies from celebrities like that, that's really not my character to have, you know, used that racial slur. It's like, well, you did though. So that, so it is your character to have done that. That's what you did. As far as like, again, no one was holding a gun to your head and being like, do this against your will. You did it because that's who you are. Right? There is, no, there is no distance between our actions and our hearts, right? And so the, really this is, this is seen throughout the Ten Commandments, right? It says this, what, like it's just simple questions. What does it make you if you worship idols? How's the Bible talk about people who worship idols? They are idolaters. What does it make you if you commit adultery? You are an adulterer, right? What does it make you if you steal your neighbor's stuff? Ungrateful, not a stealer, uh, a thief, right? Um, right. What is, you know, if you covet your neighbor's things, you know, you, you, you're ungrateful for what you have, right? Uh, if, if I was forced to stretch it to just one commandment, I would also say this, right? Exodus 24 says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Have you ever thought about why God doesn't want an image? Every other God in the ancient world would have had some sort of an image so that you could associate him with something, right? So you can look at something, so you can know something about him, right? Uh, God chooses not to do that. I would argue at least one of the reasons, there are many, but one of the reasons that God does that is he already has an image. Do y'all realize that, that God has an image? We, collectively, human beings, are made in the image of God. He doesn't need an image because when you look at other people, you can see his character at work in the world. Right? Therefore, he says, don't make an image and don't worship any other images because I want my image untainted. Right? I want you, you and your character, right, to reflect my character. Who are you to be? You're to be like me. Right? I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't covet. I don't uh, break my promises. We are created in God's image to image God. Now, third uh, perspective we should take into account is normative ethics. Normative ethics. Norms, norms are, is just a, another word for saying the word law, right? So if you're doing normative ethics, it's like law ethics. This is concerned with duty. It asks the question, what are we to do? What am I to do, right? Uh, you got consequentialism asking, uh, where are we to go? You've got uh, the one we just talked about, existential, who am I to be? Normative says, what are we to do, right? Ask the norms. This perspective takes its meaning from the word laws, and it asks, despite whatever situation I'm in, right? Despite whatever situation I might be in, what is always right and what is always wrong regardless of the outcome? Right? Yes, like this might blow back, this might cause suffering, I don't know, but like, the, the truth is at the end of the day, who would it make me, uh, what, what does God say I ought to do in this situation, right? Do not lie. Don't lie. Don't lie. I already hear the pushback. Well, what if the Nazis came to your house and asked if there were Jews under the floorboards? Would you tell them the truth? Uh, right? Again, you don't live in Nazi Germany. There aren't Jews under your floorboards. That's a bad question because it doesn't concern your real life. But if I were to answer it, tell them, why don't you take a look? Again, not lying, right? Be creative. Uh, the problem, again, your consequentialist worldview is limiting you to two options and you have to stop thinking that way. 
Stop thinking in terms of binaries, what's the lesser of two evils, and say, well, what am I not supposed to do? I'm not supposed to lie. I'm standing in front of this guy. I'm not supposed to lie. And also, I don't want him to kill the people that are inside my house. Why don't you check? I got nothing to hide. Right? I got, I got, no, I got nothing. You can look around. You know? Actually, I guess I got like, nothing to hide. You got to get good at this. Right? Uh, I do have something to hide. Uh, um, I conceal nothing from you. You can look anywhere you want. There you go. You can look anywhere you want. I, am not con- I conceal nothing from your eyes. You can look wherever you want. Um, right? Like, get, get creative about not lying. You really shouldn't lie. This is, uh, this is Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. God doesn't say you shall not murder because if, like, you know, because if you murder, then, like, your neighbor might murder, and then everybody's murdering each other, and that would be bad. Uh, right? He just says don't do it. Just don't. Just Every, in every situation, just really just murder. Just no. Mm-mm. Right? That's all, he, that's all he says. Right? Along with a number of other ones that are like that. Uh, but normative, normative ethics, right? Really, it just seeks to confirm our lives to God's laws, regardless of the situation. All right. Fourth and final, the last, the last ethical perspective we should hold in tension with the others is that uh, that of narratival ethics. Again, I've just coined this one. Um, narratival ethics. And this is concerned with vision. Now, this has been said elsewhere, but I'm, I'm adding it to the usual three. This is concerned with vision. And it asks the question, how am I to see? Right? right? We're supposed to ask, where am I going? Uh, what am I doing? Where am I? Uh, who am I to be? Right? And this one says, how am I to see? How am I to see a given situation, right? Because God is sovereign over all things, and he, that means that he gives us a unique way to view the world. Last night, it was talked about, uh, Ryan said this, that like, we know the end of the story. We actually know the beginning. We're living in the middle, and we know the end. And that means that we, are, we, are, we have a very unique view on the world where we know where it's headed. And we can make decisions based on the story that we are in. We can see it rightly and accurately. God has given us, like, you know, just like I can't see very well without my glasses, right? When I put them on, I can see clearly. God has given us a set of lenses by which we can see the world rightly. Uh, You see it actually in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, right? And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right, the next one, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, God says, actually, if you see, like, yes, I'm about to give you laws. Yes, I'm about to help you with existential ethics. I'm, I'm about to do all that. But before you do that, I want you to know the story. I just brought you out of Egypt. I have redeemed you. That's the story you're living in. And everything else will make sense if you understand this story. If, this, if at the heart of your story is the Christian story, the world will start to make sense. Right? Of course, we're, we have something better than the Exodus. We have Jesus liberating us from our sin. Right? You, at the center of your story is that God has become a man, died on the cross, and resurrected, and you can have hope. Right? That's your story. That's our story. That's what we're living in. Uh, to give you an example of this, also in the Bible, uh, y'all, y'all are aware of the story of David and Goliath? That's like popular, even in popular culture, right? Everybody knows that story. Well, uh, usually David gets made to be the hero. He's not the hero. God's the hero. But anyways, uh, if David were the hero, right, uh, we tend to think of David's victory as like, you know, he had faith and he took these 
stones and like God like sent him just the one like right directly in Goliath's head like just perfect shot kind of thing and it's like a a victory of the little guy over the big guy actually you know what you know what David's victory was it was a victory of a narrative a vision he could see it rightly in first Samuel 17 24 uh it's described Samuel describes it this way all the men Saul or sorry Goliath comes up and says "I'll, I'll take any challenger says this All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. Right? They look at Goliath and they go, uh, consequentialists, they go, if I were to go up against that God, I can think of one consequence, and it's that I die. So I'm going to take the other consequence, which is I'm going to run away. (laughs) Right? Consequentialists, all of them. David has a victory of vision. Two verses later, this is what David says. David says to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who, right, hear this question. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you hear that? These guys look at Goliath and say, I can't take him. David says, who is that guy against God? Right, he he has a victory of vision. He knows the story he is living in. He has the right narrative. God is at the center. He's in charge. And so that guy, I mean, he's a puny shrimp compared to God. Right, he's able to see uh, past consequentialism and into the right narrative. And that gives him the ability to see rightly and to do rightly in that situation, right? Now, these perspectives, right, take all of them together. Take all four of those perspectives together. When combined, it gives us a full-orbed picture of ethics, right? How we ought to live. It promotes uh, friendship, right? As we ask, who are we becoming, right? In the existential perspective. Like, who is helping me get to where I want to be in my character, right? It refuses false dichotomies and whataboutism, right? As normative ethics say, like, Two things can both be wrong. Yeah, I also don't like the thing that you are doing, right? God has grown his church. uh, Sorry, I'm skipping ahead, Uh, right? The two things can both be right. Uh, That applies in voting for elections, but also refusing lesser of two evil evil arguments uh, from social evils like, you know, abortion, creation care, all that kind of stuff. I'll also add that narratival ethics, what that allows for us to see is that Uh, it allows us to not make too much of ourselves. This is the good news of putting these together. You don't have too much, uh, make too much of yourselves, which leads to, right, consequentialism. Part of the reason I think we're so anxious is that we are full-blown consequentialists. You are always in control of the future. You have always got to make the right decision based on what, based on some unknowable thing, and that is crushing you. Right? If you give some of that over and you say, I'm living in a story, God's in charge, right? it, it takes that burden off you and you don't cut God out of your decision making. Now that's true on a macro level, right? Um, I'll say this, uh, got a little spicy take here. Uh, this means that we, particularly in the church, uh, Christians, do not need to be concerned with maintaining Christian power in the United States of America. We do not need to be concerned by that, 
right? Consequentialism says, well, what happens if, if we can't preach the way we want? What happens if, so we need to like, you know, fight for our rights and make sure that we can do things. We, like, I'm not, for the record, I'm not against doing those things, but I might do those things because it's good to like exercise your civic freedom. It's good. Like those are norms that are good, right? They're, they're, they're things that make me into a person that I want to be, to be somebody who speaks up and who tries to engage my neighbor and things. But I don't do that because I'm afraid of the consequences, Think about this, right? God has grown his church regardless of how many different governing authorities have viewed Christians over the years. And in fact, Christianity has never flourished quite like it has when it's persecuted. It's how it grew in ancient Rome from a little tiny sect in Palestine to a, like, I mean, a global religion. It's through people not being concerned with consequences and instead actually doing what is right in front of them. Right? doing what God has required of them moment by moment. We shouldn't fear a government. We should fear God, right? So we don't need to like power hungry and power grab and make sure we're doing all the right things like to, to set ourselves up. Why don't we just do the right thing instead of the thing that we think is gonna make us powerful or protect us? I'll also say that this is true on a, on a micro level when we get narratival ethics into our, into our bones, right? Like, uh, there is a way that you can underthink marriage where you're just like, I don't know, he loves Jesus, let's just do it, right? Like, for the record, like, if you think he's also super lame and not funny, like, probably don't marry that guy. Um, you know, like, I don't want to marry somebody who thinks I'm lame, but like, uh, right, uh, there's a way to underthink marriage, um, or you, you know, but there's also a way to overthink marriage. I was describing this earlier, right? When you try to, like, make sure that it's the right person. Like, narratival ethics says, the Lord loves you and he'll sustain you. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Does he love Jesus? Do you like him? Does she love Jesus? Do you like her? There you go. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like, it's not rocket science, right? It's not, you don't have to be a consequentialist about these things, right? Remember what narrative you're a part of. You, you can't play God, right? You can just commit and trust. Quadruperspectivalism. It's a big word. I know, I know. But it's just a fancy way of saying that God has made us in such a way that we work best, we flourish, when we consider him and his ways as he has revealed them to us in his word. Right? It helps us know him and to look more like him. 